15 seconds in your mind just between you and the Lord to pray for our nation that is in such crisis in so many ways. Can we do that? Pray for our families. Let's pray simply that he would be glorified in all things. truly are blessed today to be a church in your name. There are many who call themselves a church, but we know that it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that the true church lives and breathes and has any has any meaning. And so Lord, as we look into your word this morning, as a people, we're here to open our hearts to you, to surrender in humbleness. As we have been studying through your gospel letter of the birth of our Lord, Lord, may we take into ourselves the truth that you want us to know. Lord, may we exude to one another a love for you and a love for each other, a love for those in our community. Lord, that we may live righteously before you, that we may live our lives unafraid of the events that occur in a wicked society in many ways, that we would not walk in any kind of fear. So, Lord, we're coming on behalf of faith today, trusting you, knowing that you are God. And so we honor you and we worship you in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, so find your place in Matthew chapter 2. We didn't quite finish that last time, and so I wanted to make sure that we did just that. So Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to pick up our reading back in verse 16. I did reference that and make a couple comments about verse 16. But we're going to back up to verse 16 and we're going to read through the rest of the chapter again. You'll notice in your outline that um, I planned on going on through chapter 3 today, at least the first six verses of chapter 3. But uh, there's just way too much to talk about and too much to share uh, for us to rush through that. And so we'll put that off. Next week, unless the Lord has a different plan, and uh, we get to that point, we'll keep moving. But uh, we're going to just finish up chapter 2. So stand with me in honor of the Lord and His Word, and we'll read this together. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. 
Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. All right, now as you're getting your minds back in focus here this morning based on what we have talked about, let's just review just a touch, and that is, praise the Lord, now according to Matthew, the Christ, the Lord himself, is now on the earth. He's a baby at this point, and Herod, the king of the Jews, so to speak, who's really not the king of the Jews, Jesus is the king of the Jews, has found out that the prophecy has been fulfilled and he wants to kill him. In the meantime, God goes to Joseph in a dream and he warns him about this and tells him to flee to Egypt and to stay there until Herod dies. And then we learned, out of all of this, according to verse 15, we didn't read that this morning, but this was all to fulfill prophecy, the foretelling of what God had already made known many, many years prior to the event that had occurred. And in fact, verse 15 says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, that was written many, many years prior to this event. So now when Herod realizes that he's been tricked, he flies into a rage, because that idea of tricked is this was a purposeful thing, he'd been manipulated, and he puts out this edict that says that every male child from basically the time Christ had been born or thereabouts, and he goes up sometime probably to about two years and down and says we're going to make sure we catch this person, this kid who's going to usurp my authority and has them slain. So the children two years old and younger, the male children two years of age and under, are killed. And notice now, beginning for our in our text today, verse 17, this also was to fulfill God's plan. So let's look at verses 17 and 18 again. We just read this, but this is what we want to talk about just for a minute. What, was, what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think that you're a lot like I am in the sense of hearing certain things in the text of Scripture that are a little challenging to understand. We talked about this last time about why would God allow something like this to occur? Why, why not go about this in a different way? What is the real plan of God in making Joseph and Mary go through what they're going through? And we talked about, again, if you remember, the circumstances of our, of our, circumstances of our own lives and why we have to go through some of the things that we have to go through. You and I are smart people, and we often question, God, couldn't we just have done this a little different way? It seems like that this would have been a better path, and yet, unfortunately, we have to go on this path. We find ourselves asking, Lord, what is the deal? What's going on? What's the real issue here? Well, I was in a conversation with a young lady at the gym this week, and interestingly, she asked me the same kind of question. She's facing some situations in her life, and she's kind of a deep thinker, and she said to me, Bruce, why do you think God makes us go through the things that we go through? Well, 
There's a couple reasons behind that, and you all already know this, that God doesn't make anything uh, happen that he's not providentially planned and for his glory's sake and for his good, which is actually the reason that we're or the answer to the question. For God's own glory's sake. And so let me read you something that I found that I think will explain this even better than I can at this point. This comes from uh, John Piper some years ago. Those of you who have heard of John Piper, is a great teacher of scripture, very deep. And he has had a passion for the glory of God and the revealing of God's glory. But let me just read some of his text here for you. He says that probably no text in the Bible reveals the passion of God for his own glory more clearly and bluntly as Isaiah 48, 9-11, through 11, where God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. Now he's talking to Israel here. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And John Piper goes on to say, I found that for many people these words come like six hammer blows to a man-centered way of looking at the world. Listen again to what Isaiah says of God saying this, For my name's sake, for my sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, twice he says that, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Piper says, what this text hammers home to us is the centrality of God in his own affections. In other words, the most passionate heart for the glorification of God is God's own heart. God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. And listen, I want to read to you some other things that Piper has brought out here, verses that explain the praise of God's glory and the purpose of God's glory being magnified in our lives to make the point. Listen to what he says here. God chose his people for his glory. We ask, why did God choose Israel? Well, the text tells us in Isaiah, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intentions of his will, listen, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Scripture says that God created us for his glory. He called Israel for his glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. He raised up Pharaoh to show his power and to glorify his own name. He defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his own glory. He spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name when he had every right to do so. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. Jesus, New Testament, sought the glory of his Father in all that he did. Jesus told us to do good works so that God would get the glory. Jesus warned that not seeking God's glory makes faith impossible. Jesus said that he answers prayer, that God would be glorified. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for God's glory. God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. God forgives our sin for his own sake. Jesus receives us into his fellowship for the glory of God. 
The ministry of the Holy Spirit is, the, is to glorify the Son of God. God instructs us to do everything for His glory. God tells us to serve in a way that will glorify Him. Jesus will fill us with fruits of righteousness for God's glory. All are under judgment for dishonoring God's glory. Herod, listen, is struck dead because he did not give God glory, according to Acts chapter 12. We're going to see that in just a minute. Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is that we see and enjoy His glory. Even in wrath, God's aim is to make known the wealth of His glory. God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory. Everything that happens will redound to God's glory. Even in the New Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the sun. Now listen, if you're listening, and by the way, there are verses that support each one of those points. That's just not man-centered kind of thinking there. This is God. Why is God doing in his work what he is doing, beloved? He's doing it for one reason, for his glory. He elevates himself. The reason you and I go through the things that we go through and the challenges that we face in this life, yes, is because of sin. But also God in his divine providence has allowed these things or have allowed these things to occur in our lives and purposefully allowing them to do what they do in our lives, even by his own direction at times, for his glory's sake. Can we just say it this way? Our life is not about us. We've said that many times over the years. But let's just repeat it in our own hearts. This life is not about me. It's not about you. This is about the glory of God. And we would be wise to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through His Word. The things that we face are to bring praise and honor to the glory of God. And so listen, today we are here to worship God and His glory. Amen? I'm saying this very emphatically this morning because we see it in the text. We see God proclaim it, but also because our sinfulness wants glory for itself. We want the glory. And that's a big part of the problem. That is the part of the problem. That is the problem. We want to fight against God for our glory's sake. Why have you made me like this? Why are you allowing these things in my life? Why are the difficulties appearing and occurring in my life? Why do we say that? Because we think we have some glory of our own. That we should be treated differently. When God has says, no, it is for my glory. And it's for my glory's sake that I came to the earth to give you the privilege of enjoying my eternal kingdom forever. And all he looks for us to do is to trust him, confess Christ as Lord, right? Romans 10, 9. Believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, and we will be saved. It's for God's own glory. Why did God do this? Why is he doing what he's doing? To bring glory to himself. Why is your life like it is? What's the answer? For his glory's sake. For his glory's sake. God allowed Joseph and Mary to go through what they went through so he would elevate himself. We would be wise to hear what the Lord says to us in that way. And that can apply to anything that we're experiencing in this life. All right, now we're in part three to finish out chapter two of this. And I want you to see from verses 17 and 18 two important things that will help us contextually, but also with some other points that we need to put in our hearts. There are two things here. Notice the city Ramah is mentioned 
there in verse 17. Well, Ramah was a very small town just north of Jerusalem, about five or six miles. And what's significant about Ramah, and the reason that it's brought out, is because Ramah was a border town. It was a border town between the northern and the southern tribes. And you say, okay, well, that's no big deal. What's that all about? You know, border towns everywhere. Well, this was significant as a town because it was in Ramah in the Old Testament when the Babylonians came to take them out of their land by force, that Ramah was the place that was the site of deportation. So they would gather them there from the north and the south into this city of Ramah, and they would take them to Babylon from that place. As you can imagine, according to what the text is saying to us in verses 17 and 18, there was tremendous weeping that must have occurred in that time and in that place. Many women crying over their children that were taken captive from their homeland by force and not allowed to return, all under the divine providence of God. Why? Because Israel rebelled against God. And God said, because you will not listen to me, your enemies will come and they will take you from your land for 70 years and then I will allow you to go back. And that's exactly what happened. But you can imagine just in a purely human sense how much weeping and wailing there must have been as they watched their loved ones being removed from their homeland. Can you imagine such a thing? And that's what, what is meant in the verse that says here, a voice heard in Ramah. And so God is using this Old Testament situation to now help us to see what he's really doing here in the days of the New Testament as Jesus is coming in. But let's stay with the point, and I think it will make sense to you in just a second. Notice also the verses say, Rachel weeping for her children. Well, who is this? Well, if you're a Bible student, you know that this was the wife of Jacob, who was Isaac's son, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, now, from Jacob and Rachel would come two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph would have two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I don't expect you to remember this genealogy, but it is important. Ephraim, we know scripturally, would become synonymous with the northern tribes, who, by the way, split from the southern tribes. This was a divided nation for many, many years. And so the north, the ten tribes of the north went just that, occupied the northern area, just north of the Ramah border. And then the southern tribes, made up of the regions of Galilee, stayed in the south. Now, Ephraim went to the north. Benjamin, who was one of Rachel's sons, as I just mentioned a second ago, was the child who was uh, given the name kind of of the southern tribe. And so the association would have been Benjamin with the south. And so figuratively, what God is pointing to is this picture of Rachel, the mother of basically the nation, mourning the loss of her children. As the ones in the north have separated, the ones in the south have separated, but now they've been taken captive by this foreign land, this foreign king who would remove them from their place. And so this is the picture here of Rachel weeping for her children. Now, these are not her direct, immediate children, but these are the people of her loins, so to speak. They're of her. And so we're watching this take place. Now, all that culminates in this particular event that we're seeing in Matthew's Gospel as a foretelling of the weeping that's going to occur in Israel once again as Herod slaughters these children. And so again, God, not being bound by time, takes a prophetic 
picture and says, listen, what once was so tragic in the people of Israel, my people will be born again through the slaughter that Herod is making in this particular event. That this slaughter would be of the children is going to be just a forerunner. And sadly now, if you think with me through history, it's just a forerunner of all the tragedies that Israel has had to experience over the years. Unless all of us are young enough, or old enough, I should say, to remember the atrocities that occurred during the world wars to the Jews. And the second world war. I was reading this week, and I'm going to show you a little video clip here in just a second. I was reading just this week of the ghettos that the Nazis established pre-World War II against, of course, over Hitler's hatred over the Jews and how there were some places, these ghettos were just that. They were slums, basically, where the people were gathered, the Jews were gathered by the Germans all across the German-occupied territories to isolate them from one another, from other Jewish groups, from the other peoples of the region that were non-Jews. And you've heard the horror stories. If you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum, in fact, that's where this little video clip's going to come from, you see the terrible, terrible tragedies and the things that were done to the Hebrew people. These were Rachel's children in the sense of prophecy. Okay? All of these things still coming from the tragedy of them and what's happened over the years. I was reading in this article that over 400,000 people were put in a 1.3 square mile ghetto at one point. It's amazing. Can you imagine 400,000 people crammed into a, a space like that? I was watching one other video of a woman who had memories as a little girl of being pushed and forced into a cattle car. And she was saying, just imagine a box car, and you know what a cattle car is, it has kind of the slats on the side. She said they put hundreds of us in there, so much so that there were no room to sit down. In fact, there were people that were dying on their feet because there was nowhere to lay down. And this is how they were treated. And so we read the history of all of that kind of thing. In fact, I had the opportunity a lot of years ago when I was in Lithuania to go to one of the concentration camps and to see firsthand the relics of what was done to the Hebrew people. In this one particular place, they said that there were no children there. We know that's not true because they found the artifacts of the eyeglasses and little shoes and whatnot and just the terrible, terrible things that were done to them. I want to show you this video, I think. Christy, if we can flip that up on the screen. It's about a minute long. There's no sound to it. It's in black and white. It's an original video right out of the Museum of the Holocaust there in D.C. of the people moving into the ghetto. Okay? This is the Germans forcing them to move in just for uh, a minute's sake here. You see that white armband on that, that person? The Jews were required to wear a Star of David on their arm or some identifying mark through the Star of David. There's the ladies having on their arms as a way to signify that these were Jews. So 
the woman just scra scrounging for whatever she can find. there's no better example than something that's actually real. You know, we read the text and we miss off from the, tr the reality of what occurred. And so what you just witnessed there was just a real uh, video footage of the Hebrews moving into some particular ghetto. I'm not even sure which one that was. It might say so on the website. Now, I just wanted to show you that because trying to tie this together helps us to realize that what was happening in the days of Jesus' birth and the attack on the Hebrew people to kill Jesus has been going on for centuries now. And it will continue on until Israel is saved. And God has said in Romans 11 that that certainly will happen. That there will, become a there will come a time where all of God's people who are the Hebrews, who are the true blood at the time, will be saved. And we've covered a lot of that in Revelation. All right, now let's keep on going here in verse 19. This was the final section of the three that we talked about the first two last time. We didn't cover this third one. Joseph and Mary returned home. Verse 19 says, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt. Again, once again, Joseph is instructed by the angel of the Lord. Pretty clear there. But this time, unlike the last time, the news is good. Get up, Joseph. Look at verse 20. Get up. Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the, the child's life are dead. Herod's dead. Now I read something from Josephus and he was a Jewish historian. He said this about Herod. Herod died of this ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to his recovery. That's a fitting end for a man of such nature, isn't it? And so the angel comes and tells Joseph, there's nobody there left to harm you. Those who wanted to seek your life and the child's life are gone. They're dead. But there were some counterparts to Herod. And Joseph wasn't instructed where to go in Israel. You notice that? He's just told to go to Israel. And so as we learned last time, we don't need to know what God is doing. We just need to obey. And so Joseph became that beautiful model of the obedience of the Lord in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we hammered that last time. You will keep my commandments if you love me. And he did obey. Look at verse 21. So Joseph got up. He took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But then we have this interesting twist here in verse 22. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And we don't know how, but somehow, through the news feed, the internet or Twitter or something, Joseph got word that Herod's dead, but his son, or at least one of the surviving sons, has taken over reign in Judea making things go pretty far south again, no pun intended here. The other son that Herod has was a guy named Antipas. 
Remember I told you the country was divided into two parts? Well, Antipas was the governing reigning, or the reigning governor, if you will, over the northern parts. That was one of Herod's sons. This one, Archelaus, was over the Judean region. Again, neither one of them was a king, per se. They were more like governors. Now, history tells us, I don't want to bore you with this, but this will help you understand why Joseph was afraid of Archelaus. Not only you're thinking that it was just because of his dad, he's probably afraid of him. Well, Archelaus was far worse than his dad in a lot of ways. So before Herod died, he decided that he was going to pay tribute to Rome by erecting a golden eagle over the gate of the temple for the Jews. Well, you can imagine that that didn't go real well for the Jews because they knew that that was an idol and they're not to worship other idols, right? Well, in time, there were two Jewish teachers who decided that that was enough and they gathered a bunch of college students together and that's a good place to get an uprising going on the college campus, right? And so he got the college students together and said, hey, are we going to stand for this? I mean, this guy is profaning the king of kings, right? And so these college students says, yeah, we don't like that either. And so they went to the gate and they began to rip down the golden eagle and they were arrested. Well, the two teachers were put to death, but the students were just given kind of a, a hand slap, if you will, kind of a thing. But it started a massive uprising of the Jews, and so Archelaus, who was now reigning over Judea in his father's place, decided he was going to take control back, and he gathered together over 3,000 Jews, who many were just there to celebrate the Passover and had nothing to do with this event at all, and had them executed. Now, that news feed evidently was widespread among the region there, and so when Joseph and Mary come north from Egypt, they learn of this. And so we're told by Matthew through this one line that he's afraid to go into that region because of Archelaus. Well, now we know historically what Joseph must have been thinking. This place was full of anarchy. It was a crazy place. So once again, God intervenes in a warning, in a dream. Notice the text here. After being warned by God in a dream... He left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't know if you've paid attention to this or not, but in most Bible texts today, the prophecies are written in uppercase letters, if your Bible does that. But you'll notice that this one is not in uppercase. Some people who are really deep studiers will say, why is that? I thought this was a prophecy like the others. Well, it's because this particular one is not recorded anywhere in the Bible that we have written for us. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't an actual and true prophecy. It's because there were other things that were written that God points to that were not recorded in the scriptures that we have right here. For example, in Jude chapter 1, way back before Revelation, that little book of just a few verses, we're told this, it was about... These men, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, if you notice, Jude refers to Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesying. 
But we don't have any record in the Bible of this particular prophecy other than what we're quoted here in Jude. In other words, it's not a prophetic writing like the others were. And there are other passages like that. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. John chapter 21, verse 25. Where we're told there were many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose, John says that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So the point is, the prophecy was not written, but it was true nonetheless. So don't get thrown off by that kind of thing. I'm just trying to make sure that you're seeing all the details of what the text is pointing out. Now, I just want to make one last point here for this time for us today, because I want to spend some time in meditation over our communion. We're told that Joseph took Jesus to Nazareth. We have to understand that Nazareth was not a good place. It was a place that was full of violent and cruel people. To be from Nazareth meant that you were a Nazarene, and that wasn't to be looked upon real nicely, not a nice association. In fact, you'd be considered part of the scum of society if you were from Nazareth. Lowlifes, not worth being a Jew. In fact, it was Nathaniel when Jesus called him to be a disciple, said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Excuse me, Philip said to him, that was Philip saying it to Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nathaniel was shocked that the Messiah would come from a place like Nazareth. Now I just want you to see God in the midst of all this. And there were Jewish leaders who even said, there's no way that he could be the Messiah coming from a place like Nazareth. You see how we developed this status kind of a thing? Well, it was going on even in Jesus' day. It isn't like, it's just like our Lord to come from the most humiliating circumstances and places, isn't it? This is the part that I think we should reflect on. Isaiah 53.3, we're told of Jesus, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah would write that years, seven over 700 years before Jesus was born, telling us about the kind of man that Jesus would actually be. Well, his mission, beloved, was to come to rescue the spiritually sick, those who were lost. So he was born among the sick. He was born among those who lived among the sick. He himself lived among the sick. And I'm not talking about the physical sickness here. I'm talking about the physically sick, excuse me, the spiritually sick. He died among the sick, among the thieves and the robbers. Isn't that interesting? Why was that the case? Because he was the Lord of the sick and of the humble. Now listen, as we think about our lives and we wonder why we are in the certain circumstances that we're in, some people have often been categorized. I was just talking to somebody earlier this week about the upper class and the lower class that many countries have, and that there is this really no middle class kind of a thing. People are isolated and separated. And we're watching our country do the exact same thing. It's been doing it for years, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. You might be a person here today that's saying, you know, God just can't use me for anything because I don't come from the right family. I don't really have the credentials. I've had so many people say that kind of thing to me. Oh, I could never be a Bible teacher. I could never hold any kind of position in the church. I could never do anything for the Lord because of who I am and where I've come from. 
The beauty of the Lord is that he came from people who were nobodies. He came unto his own who were rejected. He lived and died among those whose society were considering outcasts. And so when the world looks at us today and says, you Christians are a bunch of people who we could really do without. And by the way, that's been happening and it will continue to happen and it's going to happen here in this country. We know that. We need to understand that it's only the humble who are going to see the kingdom of God. Because that's the kind of king our king is. He's a humble king. Let me close with this verse in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. We're going to get to this, but in his Sermon on the Mount, in just a couple chapters, remember what Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in what? In spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. But rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we'll get to all that more thoroughly. But I think that's a fitting end to Matthew's point. He's painting the picture of who the Lord is. He's a God who is willing to give his life as a ransom for us of humble means. Think about it. Born to just a couple young people who had nothing to offer the world, had nothing to offer anybody even in their own community, outcast because of where they were from. He's born in a stable, no less, a place where it was only fit for animals. No big fanfare other than what the shepherds saw. But the world didn't see it. He came and the first thing that happened is the one who was the supposed leader over God's own people tried to kill him. He was considered the dregs of society. This is the Lord. This is the picture that he portrays. But the reason he portrays that is because that's his heart, but yet when he comes again, he will not come that way. He will come to take back his kingdom, to take back his earthly throne. We're here this morning because we're worshiping the king who is a king of humble means, and he wants his people to be a humble people. He wants us to be the examples of what it means to live in a society that is pushing and literally killing people in Walmarts, in abortion clinics, in bars and nightclubs, in drive-by shootings, in cars stopped at red lights, in college campuses. This is the world that we're living in. And God has said, I'm placing my spirit in those who have trusted me and will trust me for who I am to be an example to this world. Because one day I'm coming back coming back, and I'm going to make everything right. 
We are the lights. And we'll see that more clearly next week as we begin to study John the Baptist's life in chapter 3. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is I'd like for us to not rush through our time of communion here. This is a very solemn and a sacred time. I haven't elaborated on this for quite a while, but as we think about what the Lord has done for us and the kind of God that he is, I think we need to be reminded at times of what he has done for us. That his life on this earth was a display of his glory, not our own. And so we take part in the cracker, we take part in the juice, to be reminded of his coming again to celebrate who he is and what he's done for us. So, with that being said, let's have the deacons come forward, and I want you to take just a few minutes as we started off in prayer and to think about your life and where it is right now, to think about your particular relationship with the Lord, where you are with him. Ask yourself some questions. Am I growing? Am I understanding the scriptures better than I used to understand them? Am I really seeing the effectiveness or the effect of the scripture living out in my life? These are the kind of things that we should be seeing. I mean, we should be able to examine our lives, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and we should know whether we're truly in the faith or not, not just occupying space. I wish I had words, and often my prayer is, to God, Lord, give me some kind of extraordinary superpowers that I could show to the world that you are real and that you are the God that you say that you are. But that I'm reminded by the words of the Lord that he's a God of humble means. And he promotes himself in the way that he promotes them. The question is not what he's doing. The question is, what are you doing? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? This table reminds us, and Jesus said, as often as you do this, you're proclaiming the truth until he comes, right? You're proclaiming his death, his burial, his resurrection until he comes. Every second Sunday of the month, we put the elements on the table. The deacons pass them around. We say a prayer. We read through the scripture. But I wonder how often we really reflect on what the Christ has done for us. Let's do that this morning. Let's do what the Lord says to examine our hearts. To see whether we're truly in the faith. To see whether we really live according to his commandments. If you love me, if you love me, you will obey me. Amen?